so exciting to be here with you. The frozen tundra. I have enjoyed getting to know a number of you and hearing your stories, and I'm looking forward to how God will grow us together in Christ. I understand a number of folks are dealing with sicknesses and flu bugs, and we need to be sensitive to that. I also understand that February apparently is vacation month, the first Baptist Church in Westerlo, and folks are migrating south, but uh, I have so much enjoyed my time together with you. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Abaca? We began this study in this small book that is often overlooked, and it's one we overlooked because it says so much about God and about the events of the world. Baca has a burden, which he sees. God has given to him words of truth that he will share. We find ourselves in verses 5 and following. I wanted you to know that structurally, Habakkuk is put together like a, a dialogue. Habakkuk speaks, God speaks. Habakkuk speaks, God speaks. And so that's the, uh, that's the structure of it. And frankly, as we began to study, there was a certain element of frustration in Habakkuk. Habakkuk was asking, God, are you indifferent? God, don't you care? Lord, are you insensitive? And we realize that God now speaks. God speaks to those questions. God powerfully speaks. And we find ourselves in verses 5 and following. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astonished, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. The chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagles that hasten to eat. They are all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings, and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. His mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. Habakkuk will speak in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of pure eyes then to behold evil. You cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those things, on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours? person more righteous than he? Why do you make men like fish in the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net. They gather them in their dragnet. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet. Because of them, their snare is sumptuous and their food plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? One more verse, but it's chapter 2 and verse 1, an unfortunate chapter break. Rebecca says, I will stand my watch. I will set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am 
this is God's word. Father, come now and help us to see our name in the page. Come now, Lord God, and from this ancient prophecy, Lord God, make it relevant. Make the book live to us today. Lord, feed us on this truth. Prepare us for this coming week. Father, we pray that we would see you high and lifted up. Oh, Lord God, we pray for what you want to do with your text. Feed your people, I ask. Help me to be a blessing. May I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On July 15, 1944, Anne Frank, a teenage Jewish girl, wrote these words in her now famous diary. I simply can't build up my hopes on a foundation consisting of confusion, misery, and death. I see the world gradually being turned into a wilderness. I hear the ever-approaching thunder, which will destroy us too. I can feel the suffering of millions, and yet, if I look up into the heavens, I think that it will all come out right, and that this cruelty too will end, and that peace and tranquility will return again. End quote. Well, tranquility and peace did not return again for Anne. Three weeks later, Anne and her family were found in their hiding place by the Nazis, and the ever-approaching thunder carried away this thoughtful little Jewish girl to the horrors of Auschwitz and eventually to Bergen-Belsen, where she would die. We begin here because this is what Habakkuk does. It causes us to think about the ugliness of life on planet Earth. Habakkuk, the prophet, is wrestling with what Anne would call the ever-approaching thunder, not of the Nazi hordes, but of the ancient Babylonian nation. We began the study in chapter 1, and Habakkuk takes on the role of an unknown spokesman who has a burden to share. And, oh, does he share? He shares honestly and painfully some of the questions that some of us think about. We know well the vicissitudes, the ups and downs of life on planet Earth. We know about heartache, we know about injustice, we see violence, we see the insanity of sin, and we wonder, Lord, do you care? Are you working? This little book has much to teach us about God. And so for those of us who over the years have passed by on the other side, I'm inviting you to join with us in the book of Habakkuk and see what it says about God. Just a little bit of historical background again for you. There is never a good and godly king in the northern ten tribes. You read this moniker, he did that which was evil in the sight of God, he did that which was evil in the sight of God, on and on and on. But in the south, in the southern two kingdoms of Benjamin and Judah, there is occasionally a good king. And he does that, which is right in the eyes of the Lord. And the nation experiences blessing because he holds up the law of the Lord, which is able to convert sinners. Josiah comes to the throne, and he enacts a number of reforms because he has a heart for God. He loves the Lord and the law of the Lord. But when Josiah dies and passes off the scene, his sons have no heart for the Lord. And his reforms evaporate. His reforms die with him. And because there is no heart for God, 
Now, in the life of Jehoiakim, the king that Habakkuk is writing about, you realize that God is judging his people. God is going to judge his people. The juggernaut of the justice of God is about to crush the nation. And Habakkuk is wrestling with that reality. Don't you care? Are you insensitive? God, in verses 5 through 11, answers the questions posited by Habakkuk in verses 1 to 4. The charge that that Habakkuk lays before God is that God is not active. And yet, as we read through verses 5 to 11, God says, oh, oh, I'm active. But probably not in the way that you think. And so let's Let's look at two marshalling points, two signposts as we track our way through the text. In verses 5 to 11, we might say this, put this as a heading over those verses. This is God's astonishing response. God's astonishing response. God answers the prophet's questions. And initially, I think it looks as though he is adding to his grief. This is one of those situations where you almost feel like God should have said to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, you might want to sit down. Habakkuk has leveled a charge against God. God, I don't really like the way you're running things. And God says, oh, I'm active. Oh, I'm running things. But you might want to sit down. And then in verses 5 and following, God gives his answer. In verse 5, I paraphrased it this way. Watch out. You're going to be absolutely shocked. I'm going to show you things that you would never have believed or imagined. Now, we should feel the force of this, because here is a saint who has been traumatized, Habakkuk. And initially, in chapter 1, we realize that God is going to add more trauma to him. I mean, there's a part of me, my my shepherd's heart, that says, you know, look, he's already upset. We sure could use a little good news today, as Anne Murray said. And yet, as we look at verses 5 and following, it's not good news. There is an element of ferocity to it. God essentially says, I am working. I have picked up a stick, the Babylonians. Does that shock you? I indeed am raising up the Chaldeans. And then it goes on to describe this nation, a bitter and hasty nation. They march all over the earth. Verse 7, they're terrible, they're dreadful, they're judgment. And their dignity proceed from their selves. This is the smothering absorption with self. This is the autonomous self. They're totally self-centered and self-orientated. Oh, and they have might and they have ability. Their horses are swifter than leopards. Whereas they more fierce than evening wolves looking for din-din. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. We're used to the Calvary coming to the rescue. Calvary's not coming to the rescue here. In fact, God's astonishing response is, Oh, Habakkuk, I am working. I am moving. I am doing something. In fact, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians, and they're going to judge Israel. Now, we should feel the weight of this. Because I'm sure that the prophet Habakkuk felt the weight of that. It's as though Habakkuk is somehow shocked by what God is doing. But if we could back up before we can go further ahead, he should not be shocked by this. 
Let me direct your attention to one other passage in God's Word, Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. In Deuteronomy 28, God lays out the planks, if you will, the structure and the form of his covenant people. And it begins, the, the first number of verses, and it's a long chapter, we're not going to look at all of it because I think it's 68 verses long, but it begins with these kind of glorious promises. If you will obey me, then blessing is going to follow. You're going to be blessed in the city, verse 3. The fruit of your body is going to be lots of kids. The increase of your herds, verse 4. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. I mean, blessing, abundance, promises, good stuff. This is the kind of kingdom agenda that people typically love. So he he says, you know, if you will obey me, if you will follow me, if you will reverence me, this is what's going to happen. But it's amazing because there is a distinct change in the chapter at verse 15. At verse 15 it says, but, word of contrast, but it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes which I command you today. But all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then it, the chapter just unloads. I mean, it unloads. And there's a lot. Talks about cursing, confusion, rebuke. Verse 25, being defeated before your enemies. Verse 26, your carcasses shall be food for all the birds of the air. 27, the Lord will strike you. 28, the Lord will strike you. Verse 34, you'll be driven mad. 36, the Lord will bring you and the king whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. You shall become an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword among all nations where the Lord will drive you. We ought to feel the weight of that. Because God never negotiates his holiness. Because with God, when he says it, he means it. And when he said to his people, if you will obey me and reverence me, I will bless you. Superabundance will be a byword. And when he says, if you run from me, if you become idolaters, if you find yourself bowing down to wood and stone and stupid things, I'm going to judge you. Now, you need to understand that there's a baseline here, and it doesn't mean that God ever forsakes his people. It means that he so loves them that he will chasten them to get their attention. And that should land on us. Because sometimes we contend with the, with the ups and downs of life, and we think, God, why, why do you hate me? And he doesn't. He loves us, but he will have our full attention. You cannot scribble out the word wrath or judgment or justice from the Word of God because you're uncomfortable with it. And we moderns are very uncomfortable with it. You either have a big God who is totally in charge, or you have this tiny little God that you make up on your own or you create from your own cultural bearings. God is not Mr. Rogers. He does not wear a cardigan sweater and boat sneakers. He is a consuming fire, God's word tells us. 
He is God and God alone, and he is utterly and totally and gloriously sovereign and in charge of all things. So this is an astonishing response on one level, but not so astonishing because God had said, if you don't obey me, this is going to happen. Justice in the hands of Babylon was not the answer that Habakkuk probably expected. But God was determined to root out his people's idolatry. We humans tend to think that the physical is the most important aspects God who deals in the realm of the spiritual and the eternal is always leveraging his power so that he might have our full attention. Because in that there is blessing and flourishing. The prophet, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians were cruel with a capital C, fierce and aggressive and impetuous and greedy and dreaded and swift and skilled and autonomous. But here was the Calvary coming for plunder because God had determined that he would get his people's attention somehow. In verses 9 and 10, it tells us they swagger, the Babylonians swagger in victory. Nothing seems to be too hard for them. There is a pervasive arrogance about them. The thought of another nation judging, hurting Israel is abhorrent to the prophet about that. Pagans judging the covenant nation? This corresponds to some of what we see unfold in the book of Jonah. It's a similar tension. Jonah does not run away from the assignment to preach the good news and preach repentance in Nineveh because he's afraid or a scaredy cat. He doesn't want Nineveh and the Assyrian kingdom to turn back to God and God be merciful to them. The Assyrians who are in the ascendancy now, the Babylonians are in the are in, waiting in the wings, but the Assyrians are cruel with a capital C, too. These are the kind of folks that used to pile up a pile of heads outside a city gate. They were terrorists. They skinned people alive and stuck it to the walls. So Jonah, in a nationalistic sense, feels the exact same way that Habakkuk does. Now, you would allow people like that? You would use people like that? He doesn't understand the judgment and the justice of God. And it reminds me that we like, as humans, we like neat and tidy judgment that makes sense to us and that we can see and understand and it's tangible and touchable. Kind of like the Italian woman who discovered that her husband was cheating on her. And so in her distress, she jumps off of a building only to land on her cheating husband who happened to be walking by. He dies from the impact, but her life is spared. There's a part of it that says, I can, I can get behind that. I get that. But this long-term judgment of God, that he's working a plan and he's not bound to time the way we are, oh, how we struggle with that. Would you're working out your purposes, really? If we can see injustice all around us, unless we somehow think that there are these evil, vile, nasty nations out there, but that we never struggle with violence, perversity, or refusing to bow before King Jesus. We ought to think about the blood on the hands of us as a nation regarding aborted babies. Habakkuk will eventually revel in the character of God, but this will not happen automatically. The truth that will surface from the book of Habakkuk 
is that God does not settle his account, his accounts every day. Well, he settles his accounts. Everything gets settled ultimately and finally and perfectly because he sees it all and he knows it all. But God is from everlasting to everlasting. The challenge for us believers as we think our way alongside of the Baptist ministry is don't sacrifice the eternal for the temporary. God is eternally working out his purposes in ways that I do not fully understand at times. Can I trust him? Have I seen him prove door and door? We recognize the truth of his covenant blessing, that he does not forsake his people. He does not abandon his people. He does not, they, the Israel will not stop being his children because they, are, they have found themselves in sin or rebellion. Oh no, he will work behind the scenes to get their attention. Two great truths, I think, have to be held in tension as we look at a book like Habakkuk. God sees and knows more than we do. God sees and knows more than we do, and we are not as guiltless as we might believe that we are. Habakkuk is all shook up. And sometimes, dear ones, that's a good place to be. Because when that happens, we lean, we learn, we trust, we rest. It's a good thing to be humbled before the mighty hand of God. God of glory judges. If he did not, he would not be God. Let's think of it in this context. Give your children everything they want. Go ahead. Don't be a parent, be a pal. Do whatever they want. You know what they will do? They will hate you. They need boundaries and borders. They need Discipline, which ultimately means restraint. They need it. The reality is that we are God's children, and God does not give us everything that we want. He knows that we need boundaries and borders. And so we have, first of all, this truth that God answers. God says, oh, you don't think I'm acting? You don't think I'm moving? You don't think I'm doing something? I'm doing something. I'm picking up Babylon. I'm going to use those folks to judge Secondly, and finally this, in verses 12 and following into chapter 2 and verse 1, notice again the perplexity of the prophet. In, in spite of these incomprehensible tactics, the prophet is determined to depend on God. It's almost as though you begin to hear in verse 12 a kind of smoldering hope. This is going to be a severe mercy. He, he begins by talking about God to God. Are you not from everlasting? Oh, Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. Oh, Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. Oh, rock, you've marked them for correction. You are of pure eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Now, he's going to lodge a complaint against Babylon, and yet you begin to see that these two streams are going to weave together, and we'll see more of it in chapter 2 because God is going to essentially say, and we'll get there when we get there, God is going to essentially say, I'm going to pick up Babylon and use them to discipline my people, and I'm going to discipline Babylon for disciplining my people. Which, if it sounds a little complex, means you've got to come back and hear more from chapter 2. But there's a perplexity here. He begins by declaring that God is eternal. 
He begins by declaring here that God is immutable and unchangeable. These are great truths about God and the Godhead. God doesn't change. He will keep his promises. He doesn't break faith. He doesn't shatter covenants. A covenant is only as good as the person who made the covenant. An agreement is only as good as the, as the, the people who make the agreement. Some of you probably have a contract with a roofing company that gave you a lifetime warranty, and two years after you got that warranty, they were nowhere to be found. Right? So what good is a lifetime warranty? Not a lot. Because the agreement is only as good as the person that makes the agreement. And so what Habakkuk is contending with here is this covenant relationship that God has with Israel. And it is unbreakable because God is unbreakable and immutable. In verse 12, you'll notice that there is confidence even in delivery. We will not die. Habakkuk understands there's a master in control even of discipline. The latter part of verse 12, oh Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. Oh, you, O rock, have established them to correct. Then in verse 13, Habakkuk appeals to the holiness of God. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Things are take to us almost, and that's so sad, because the holiness of God rests too lightly on the American church. The holiness of God rests too lightly church. Like a greedy fisherman, the text goes on, why do you make men like fish in the sea? Like a greedy fisherman, Babylon is going to keep capturing and keep taking, and they don't care about anything. And so amidst this perplexity, Habakkuk is talking to God about the kind of judgment and the kind of stick that God has picked up. We recognize that Habakkuk is limited in time and scope. Just like we are. We are limited in time and scope. This is a chapter that is weighted down with distress and disclosure and dilemma. And so you almost have to sneak across the line as we prepare to bring this in for a landing and realize that Habakkuk is beginning to see some things that he must see. Chapter 2 and verse 1. Chapter 2 and verse 1 last statement of Habakkuk before God will again refrain, I will stand my watch and set myself in the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. I love his perspective here. This is the kind of perspective that folks, you and I both need. When you don't understand what God is doing and how God is doing it and you wonder out loud sometimes, why, Lord? Why is my loved one sick? Why am I waiting by their bedside? Why the trauma in my family? Why the unrest in our culture? Why the almost almost antagonistic, the trolling kind of comments that we hear daily? Why, Lord? Look at how he responds. I'm going to go and watch and see. I'm going to wait so that when I'm corrected, Lord, this, folks, is the perspective for us when we find ourselves wrestling with the, with the ups and downs of life. What do we do? We wait, we watch, we see. We go someplace and get still and get quiet before God. We commit ourselves to the character of God. The name of God is a strong power. We run towards Him, not away from Him. Do we dare get angry at what God 
is doing. Realizing that for Israel, he had told them beforehand how he would judge them if they ever ran from him. The prophet will wait for a more definitive answer. And the call of God upon our lives is, Lord, I'm going to wait on you. I don't understand. And folks, you need to know that I don't understand some things that God is doing. But I do believe that in chapter 2 and verse 1 when he says, I want to watch and see until I'm corrected, that he's adopted the exact right perspective. Three applications. God never loses control. When we grapple, which is the name for a battle, when we grapple and wrestle, he's acting in ways that we may not understand, but God is never at a loss. God never loses control. There are times and seasons in our lives when we have to remind ourselves of that, because it seems as though God has abdicated the throne and he has not. Secondly, God is not afraid of our questions. He knows well our weaknesses. He is touched with our griefs. I don't want to minimize someone's pain or suffering. It's not as though somehow God's like, yeah, I told you I was going to get you. It's not the way God operates. There's a loving kindness to God. Although he will have our attention, our full attention. God's not afraid of our questions. Thirdly and finally this, God is neither inactive nor inconsistent. The problem for us is that we have to wait. And oh, what a weight there is to waiting. W-E-I-G-H-T and W-A-I-T-I-N-G. I mean, sometimes the trauma for us is just being able to wait and be still before God. It's like, come on, God. Because we're bound to time and space, God's not, but we're bound to that. And so, come on, God, let's go. Come on. That's not the way it works with God. What do we do when God does not act the way that we thought he would? Do you feel the weight of that? Well, we go to our watchtowers and wait on him. God can use, and this is what's so fascinating about this love letter, God can use trials and intruders and discomfort to cause blessing and flourishing and to get our full attention. Do you believe that, church? He does. He's used it in my life, and I'm sure he had it in yours as well. In 1995, 14 wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone National Park. They had been absent from that environment for some 70 years. The wolves began to do what wolves do really well, which is track down, hunt, and kill deer. The deer population decreased, and the deer began to avoid areas that made them easy prey for the wolves. This meant that plants in these areas now had a chance to grow again, and so aspen and willow began to flourish, and other trees and bushes brought with them berries and buds. With a new food supply, various species of birds began to return to Yellowstone. The increased tree population attracted beavers that had been previously extinct in the, extinct in the park. The industrious beavers, oh, they're so industrious, Industrious beavers built dams that attracted other critters, otters, muskrats, and various reptiles. Because the wolves had also limited the number of coyotes, the mice and rabbit population began to increase. With a new food source, red foxes, 
Weasels, badgers, and hawks began to make their way back to Yellowstone. There was even an increase in the population of bald eagles. Now, here's where it gets interesting. The wolves even changed the course of the river. With a better balance between predator and prey, there was a marked increase in vegetation, which meant less soil erosion. The riverbanks were stabilized, channels narrowed and deepened, and pools formed. The rivers stayed straighter and were fixed in their course. Balance became obvious and marked, all because some wolves were released. So what's with the environmental lesson, you ask? Thank you for asking. God uses wolves. God used Babylon, and God uses wolves. God is sovereign. He alone is in control, and he alone can fix us. All the king's horses and all the king's men could not put us back together again. But God can. At the foot of the cross of Calvary, when we get real about our needs because we're sinners condemned and undone before a righteous God, we stop being fake because faith is so very exhausting. King of Shalom is capable of giving us real peace and rest. Is God working in the book of the back? And he certainly is. Is it the answer that he expected? It is not. Is it perplexing? Absolutely it is. But is God in control? And is God working behind the scenes for the people's blessing and flourishing for eternity? A response has to be, yes, he is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the great rescuer, that you are the great redeemer. You've ransomed our souls from eternal separation and damnation. You've given us new life in Jesus Christ. I pray that for those of us who have become weary and well-doing and have stopped wondering about this glorious truth, I pray that we would return to our first love. We would find fresh delight from the cross. Father, I'm conscious that there might be some here who are still pretending, still hoping that they can be good enough. And Father, I pray that even as we looked at this judicial passage, that there would be an understanding that you judge, that you would not have come had there been any other way. But Lord Jesus Christ came forth, the Lamb of God, to take our place. Father, I pray that we, the Church of God, would find fresh hope, even as we deal with hurting people. And Lord, I know that there's hurting people here in this building today. And I know just a few of the stories, but they're heavy and they're sad. And Father, I pray that your grace would abound. You don't know what you're doing, Lord. But oh, Lord God, help us to trust you and rest in you. Let's follow this in strong name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.